You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring John Gray. Professor John Gray is one of the world's preeminent philosophers. Uh, he's had a long and distinguished career as a public intellectual. He was, until 2008, School Professor of European Thought at the London School of Economics. He's also held positions at Yale University and at Oxford University. His most well-known books include Mill on Liberty, A Defence, Enlightenment's Wake, Politics and Culture at the Close of the Modern Age, and False Dawn, The Delusions of Global Capitalism. During the COVID pandemic, he wrote the long essay, This Crisis is a Turning Point in History, which I'm keen to talk about. Uh, but uh, John writes regularly for The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, Unheard, and The New Statesman. John, you've gone out of your way to be with us here in London today. Very glad really to be here, John. It. Very glad to be here. And, and well, thank you and welcome. Um, if, uh, it's really important that this time of enormous flux, when we're all trying to get a hand on where humanity might be going, and that's not just a grandiose statement, I think it's actually reality, and a lot of people sense it. So can you tell us, um, philosophy, what is it? Uh, what is it at large that piqued your interest? You started with a relatively modest background. Um, you forged a path to become as prominent a philosopher and public intellectual as you are today. Your views on where we're going are sought everywhere. Give us a feel for philosophy, what it is and what got you involved. I hope you'll understand me, John, when I say that, unfortunately, um Philosophy in my time has become an intra-academic discipline. By that I mean that the cues that most philosophers now follow are those given by other philosophers. Now, if they're very good philosophers, the philosopher that I learnt the most from and uh, in, uh, um, who mentored me for many years was Isaiah Berlin. So nothing wrong <laughs> at all about <laughs> learning from Isaiah Berlin. There aren't that many Isaiah Berlins in the world. And um, in some ways, I think the academic life militates against them because he was a tremendous uh, 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 cross-disciplinary thinker. He knew about Russian history, Russian intellectual history, diplomacy. He was a friend of George Kennan's. He, he knew most of the um, uh, uh, people, politicians and people behind the scenes who were forming policy um, in the run-up to the Second World War and then in the Cold War. Um, so he knew what he was talking about. Whereas now, what I find is that um, many academic philosophers, even if they're very good in their fields, um, um, really only know about what's going on in philosophy. So what I've tried to do is to apply some ways of thinking that I derived from philosophy to try and find the underlying structure uh, of arguments, but or even sometimes a certain logic in events, apply those ways of thinking that I got from philosophy uh, by studying philosophy for many years, uh, many several decades, and apply them to the world of public affairs. I don't mean that I can take a, uh, a position which is um, unbiased or impartial. I have my own values, I have my own commitments. Um, I try to be open about them, but it might help on the one hand, to have a certain degree of philosophical distance from what's happening every day. Uh, and on the other hand, not to be so uh, um, detached from reality that um, 
you don't really touch it in your thought. Let me give you an example. Um, one of the reasons why, perhaps the main reason why I supported Thatcher as strongly as I did um, back in the 1980s, something I've never regretted, by the way, even though I began to think in certain respects her policies were self-defeating in, in, in some ways, is that um, she was a militant anti-communist, as I was. And she was one of the few people, politicians in the West around at the time. There were some in Australia and in America, but not many in the world, who really understood what communism was, what it had done to the people who had the misfortune to be subjected to it. Um, and what a catastrophe it was, um, not only for freedom, for religion, for the family, even for the environment, actually, for them. She understood all, the, all, all those things. And so when communism collapsed, uh, 1989 to 1991. I, uh, um, to me, it was the culmination of a period of um, working with various people um, around Thatcher and in various think tanks from the early 70s, actually, in the belief that communism could come down, that it wasn't there forever. But for most of my academic colleagues, nearly all, it was a complete bolt from the blue. Um, Thatcher's own uh, election to power had been a bolt from the blue. None of these things were, because although they attacked capitalism all the time, um, they um, they thought the, the world around them, the kind of social democratic world of the 1970s, would last forever. Suddenly it's gone, gone in a few years. She dismantles large parts of it in a few years, as she said she would. So if they'd bothered to uh, read what she said, they wouldn't have been as surprised as they had been, as, as, as they were. So what I try to do, I don't think of myself any longer as a, an academic philosopher. I think of myself as a voice, someone who studied philosophy, who respects philosophy, who's learned, known some great philosophers and learned from them and tries to apply those ways of rigorous and I hope rational ways of thinking to the, to the flux of events around us. To pick up something that you said, I think is really interesting there. Um, it's very easy to say, oh, philosophers got their heads in the cloud. In reality, when it comes to understanding communism, as you, as you passionately did and as Thatcher did, I would say the people who've had their heads in the cloud have been those who are pretending a communist is not a communist is not a communist, by which I mean we should have realised that Beijing was not going to liberalise. Mm while ever it was under communist control. Mm. Mm. Does that seem a fair point to make? It's, oh, it's driving at the heart of it. No, completely. Back in the early 90s, I talked to a lot of business people, bankers among others, and they were all absolutely convinced, you probably remember this, yes. they're going to liberalise. Well, um, and when they liberalise, they would say they're going to become, um, uh, it's going to become some sort of democracy. I said, it's, it's completely impossible. And the reason it's impossible is that the Chinese state was structured so that there was no rule of law. The, the, the judges swore an oath of loyalty to the regime. The only way it could become um, liberal democratic or democratic in any way is if there was a revolution. It was impossible. And also, the, they never expressed any intention of even doing that. One of the paradoxes of Western opinion is that um, uh, Putin or Xi or uh, Mao uh, can actually say very clearly what they're going to do. And the West won't believe them until they do it. And even then, they somehow don't believe it. So if Putin says, as he does now, we regard the use of nuclear weapons in certain circumstances as perfectly legitimate, people say he's just saber-rattling. Well, he might be saber-rattling, but he also might mean it. 
when the uh, Chinese uh, communists um, said, um, we're going to um, um, expand our influence, we're going to reclaim the part of, parts of greater China that we belong, think belong to us, especially Taiwan, of course. People say, well, maybe they're open to reason on I don't think they are actually, or not to negotiation anyway on that. They really mean to do it if they possibly can. Uh, so uh, I think it's not just academics. I, I quite agree with you. Business people have been among the worst. On Business people have been on the worst in their gullibility and their innocence, despite the fact that in China, they're often arrested, yes. sent to jail, yes. or more or less ransomed later on. It happens all the time, and yet people persist in this huge illusion that trade in and, uh, in and of itself with totalitarian powers makes them less totalitarian. I'm not sure, I'm not sure there's any good example of it ever having worked like that. John Lee is a very distinguished uh, Australian of Chinese background who understands very well. And he, he makes the point that we miss in the West, that uh, Tiananmen Square was only the tip of the iceberg that we got on the television sets. He said it was much more widespread across China uh, it was a closer run thing than people realise. Once it was squashed, we should have understood more clearly. His, my, those are my words. I would have thought. And then you had, you know, the collapse of, of Soviet communism. Accurate or thoughtful reading of what was happening in Beijing would surely have emphasised. Maybe I'm saying this in hindsight. I don't want to try and pretend that I'm cleverer uh, than I am. But it should have been a clear signal that they were likely to harden down. You'd had Tiananmen Square, the collapse of Soviets, the, uh, you know, the, the, that was a, obviously a threat to their power in Beijing. They were always going to. Well, the, the West read its own liberal reflexes into what the Chinese were doing, which is to say that for the Chinese, they would say, well, they won't want to do something like Tiananmen Square again. Um, they won't carry on that repression because it looks bad in world opinion. They don't give a toss for world opinion unless they, they can manipulate it. Um, what they, the way they saw it was in domestic terms, which is that Tiananmen Square was a lesson to the rest of China. And then they went on replicating it in different ways, as you say, a, a big wave of repression um, uh, right throughout the country. Uh, so that Chinese people understood that they would have no that the, that the government would have no qualms about doing that again if, if it needed if it, if it needed to. Um, I think one of the things, one of the lessons that the totalitarian powers have learned, which is unfortunately a, a well-founded lesson and genuinely true, which is that the um, the West can't keep in its public attention or even in the intention of the policymakers and the politicians can't consistently keep in mind the long um, 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 history of communist um, deception and repression. So if you studied the history of the Soviet Union, you would know that, um, as I wrote in the New States from that, of Putin's, Putin's art of war is a mixture of terror and deceitful diplomacy. The way he wages war is terroristic. It's not war as we some normally understand it, of battlefields, and uh, he goes after uh, um, um, civilian populations. And this is not, you know, you, again, if you just thought back only a few years to Syria, or a few years before that to Chechnya, you'd know that he's got a lot of experience in that kind of terroristic war. 
and you would also also know that um, he's got a tremendous amount of experience, as all the communist leaders going back to and including Lenin himself had in deceptive diplomacy. We'll do this, we'll do that. They have no intention of doing this or that. And yet when they don't do this or that, or they do something different, by then the West has forgotten. Uh, a very short attention span. I think that's one of the greatest dangers confronting us. Just as I think uh, we're eating ourselves out from within, generally speaking, in the West, the short attention span, nothing will place us in greater danger if the newfound resolve on the part of the West just dissolves away when people's eyes are no longer on the television sets every night. It's also, I mean, we're all grateful, for example, if, um, that Macron won in, um, in uh, France because Le Pen would have been a great blow on Ukraine as well as other institutions. But Macron's position on um, Russia, even up to now, um, has not really changed from the pursuit of detente with Russia. That many generations of French leaders, all the way back to de Gaulle actually, have had. It may have made more sense in the time of de Gaulle, I don't know, but certainly doesn't make sense now in the time. I mean, he's been to Putin, he's been humiliated by Putin, he's been ridiculed and mocked by Putin, and yet he carries on with it. So although the, uh, I think um, the uh, re-strengthening and revivification of the West, which is real, especially in NATO, which actually now emerges as the um, the most successful Western institution, actually, the one which is, um, it, it can be undercut by political differences um, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. For example, Austria is more or less wholly pro-Putin. Hungary, of course, is also. But the Germans are extraordinarily ambiguous, uh, as I, and, and, and the French are pursuing dreams of, um, uh, of, of detente, which are delusional now. And behind all of this, which I remind people of, even though two years from now, see, I might as well talk about 200 years. We don't know what's going to happen at the next presidential election in America. No. I mean, I mean Biden, for all people say against him, um, I think he's actually handled this reasonably well. I don't mean perfectly, but he's actually handled this uh, great crisis reasonably well. But he might be one of the last American Atlanticists, because I follow uh, American conservatism to some extent, and there's a very strong, even now, even after the invasion, even after the um, war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine, there's a strong element of right-wing opinion in the Republican Party, which is not even isolationist. It's actually worse than that. It's actually pro-Putin in certain respects. And they openly say things, I don't care what happens in Ukraine. Tucker Carlson, one of the I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, they say that, and they're a strong constituency, actually. Um, I mean, they may be not strong in numbers, but they're, they're quite influential. So um, I think the strengthening of Western resolve that has occurred has been real. But first of all, it's partial. And secondly, it might not be, it might be in some respect temporary, because underneath <coughs> these, uh, this strengthening in, in NATO with Finland and Sweden and the Baltic states and so on, all being and Poland, uh, being very stalwart. Um, we have Germany and France and Austria and uh, Hungary. Uh, and in America, we have this strange situation which parts of the right on, on America are pro-Putin and parts of the left, the woke left, very strong actually in the Democratic Party now, are against the very idea of the, of, of the West. So, 
Although, in one sense, I think the, uh, America's predominance in the world through its weaponry, its capacity to wage financial warfare, and so on, is stronger than it looked two or three years ago. It's much stronger. Internally, in America, the um, uh, crumbling of certain values and certain, a certain kind of outlook on the world is still is actually faster than before, and that's unstable. It's an unstable equilibrium. And what I fear is, I don't say this will happen, but I fear that whoever um, uh, the next president is, it looks more likely than not to be a Republican. And if it's a Republican, uh, even if it's not Trump, it could be someone as bad or worse than Trump, but also more intelligent, more self-disciplined. If you had an American version of Orban, a tough professional politician, very disciplined, not whimsical, not capricious, not narcissistic, the way Trump was, um, you could be in a very bad situation in America. One were playing to the, to the American interest in scaling down its commitment in the world. I mean, it may not happen because, of course, the Americans uh, are very conscious of the Chinese issue. That's the difference. I'm That's the difference. But they could lose interest to some extent. We don't know how the two years is an awful long time in this U Ukraine war. Even two months are a very long time, as we know, just passed. But they could lose interest in what happens in Europe, especially if the major European powers themselves don't come through, don't come through with their commitments. Um, continue trading, continue feeding the war machine, the Putin war machine. Um, uh, uh, then the Americans might say, well, all right, we've done our, we've done our bit. We've done what we can. Um, uh, we're going to turn on the main problem now, which is, which is China. We can't do both. I wonder whether they can do both, actually. Well, militarily, there are real doubts about that. But, yeah. but um, drawing those strands together, uh, if I can put it this way, when a man of your standing says this, um, however this war develops, it marks a breakdown in the international system comparable with the end of the first era of globalization in 1914. Yes. That is a very big statement. It's a strong statement. I'll tell you, I think I mean two things by it. The first is perhaps more obvious, though still not sufficiently thought about than the second. The first is um, the Ukraine war marks a breakdown in the global nuclear settlement. Yes. Um, Very clearly now, and uh, dangerously so. And dangerously so, in a number of ways. Take the least, uh, maybe um, threatening, to at least uh, in the short run. Um, I think it will cool interest in civilian nuclear energy throughout the world. And that's unfortunate because um, as many, you, you probably take a similar view as I do, who studied it, we all think that um, uh, nuclear energy is a vital component of solving the climate problem. But although the Indians and the Chinese may still go ahead, the Chernobyl uh, uh, disaster links in the mind of the public uh, the fear of um, nuclear energy with nuclear war. It's too risky, it's too dangerous, we don't want it. So outside of India and outside of um, um, China, it may cool that interest. But the second, of course, is that it will, it may have an impact on proliferation because Ukraine did have nuclear weapons. It gave them up and look what's happened to U Ukraine. And thirdly, but this is the really deep one, which I don't know that 
I'm sure there must be people in NATO thinking about this and so on, but hasn't been all that much talked about in, in, the, in the public media, um, is that um, the classical deterrence theory was based on multiple rational actors. Yes. And rational actors meant by that, that not just that they would calculate and, uh, and, and work out risks, but actually it was assumed that they had rather similar values to each other. They wanted prosperity rather than poverty. They wanted um, life rather than death. Uh, they wanted um, uh, um, to avoid catastrophe to their own countries as well as to others. I think one of the things about Putin is that it's becoming questionable whether he shares all of those features. Not that he's necessarily irrational in the sense that he can still calculate his policies, he can still even calculate risks, but his estimate of the importance of the risks differs from ours. Let me give you an example. I mean, more, the more you read about uh, the, the, the background, the intellectual background to the Ukraine war, his essay, celebrated essay, and the people he's quoted from, uh, uh, the writers he's cited from, an almost semi-mystical idea of the Russian world emerges. What he's protecting is the Russian world. It's been damaged, it's been threatened, it's been challenged by NATO. It's even been existentially threatened, he says, by or, or implies or could be, by, um, by the West. Now, the, whatever the Russian world may be, it's actually larger even than the borders of the Russian Federation as it is now, because it includes Ukraine and um, maybe Moldova and Transnistria. Uh, um, and some other parts of the former um, um, Soviet Union. So if what he sees as his goal is to reunify that uh, Russian world, and if he's prepared to incur great risks, even, even and, and to use, to break the taboo, for example, to break the norm against uh, battlefield nuclear weapons, if to do that, um, then his way of thinking, though in one sense rational, it's calculating, he's, he exploits the weaknesses of others, he thinks about what to do next. He may not get always get good information because he clearly didn't get good information about uh, how he'd be received in Ukraine, for example. And it may also be that his military preparedness, the preparedness of ground troops and coordination problems, logistic problems, is much, much worse than either he or anyone in the West, all of that. But still it could be rational. But it's in the service of a worldview, which isn't a Western worldview of the kind that nuclear deterrence actually presupposes. So I think this is, it is close to becoming a, uh, a crisis of the nuclear settlement, a crisis of the nuclear status quo, which after all, let's remember, it, um, proliferation was halted, not completely, Pakistan has the bomb, but South Africa didn't get it, Taiwan, lots of places that had programs, didn't develop, it was all rolled back or slowed down. What could happen? The Iranians maybe resume their program after with a weak deal with the Americans. If the Iranians do it, then the Saudis will buy it off the shelf or do it themselves somehow. Um, it's been put in the mix. But the deepest thing, I think, is the challenge it poses to, to deterrence. Because, of course, the one thing we know from this war so far is that, in a sense, the West is shackled in what it can do. Um, by the fear of nuclear escalation on the, on the other side. And he's got escalation dominance because he can always ratchet it up. Uh, and um, and uh, he hasn't yet, I suppose, well, he's used thermobaric weapons. 
he may have used or be thinking chemical weapons, not then nuclear. But is there the barrier in his own mind that there is in Western minds to using these? He's got more of them, has he not? I mean, I think he's his... The theatre bombs. Yeah. There's a really critical thing to understand because yeah. we think everything... I think it's ICBMs. Right. But a part of what is undermining you know, yeah. the national international system of deterrence is that he's got a vast number. I think he has about... I've read in the press that, that he has... Um, that the Americans have about 200... And he's got about 2,000. Yeah, and they can take out a town or a village. Ten times as many. Yeah, well, mm. and, and you see, that, I mean, they don't play into the standard idea that it would be mutually assured destruction. No. That if, um, you know, you take out New York, we'll take out Moscow. Yeah. No. They could take out, you know. A village or a, a village city or a or town. Yeah. And that lowers the risk for them in their minds mm. or, the, or the idea that they're escalating it at the same time as, we're, I don't think we're understanding that no. possibility. I think also there's, there's a certain laxity in talk of a long war. I mean, people say, well, this could go on a long, long time. It probably could in terms of um, Ukrainian resistance, as long as they're reasonably well supplied. But actually, could there be a long war for Putin? It's not so obvious because his, um, his, uh, uh, he's losing staggering numbers of men. Mm. An uh, estimated 15,000. Yeah. Maybe more now. Oh, maybe more by, by now. And we don't know how many are desertions and, and I mean, not just casualties, deaths or, yeah, um, but others who are out, out of action. I don't know if you saw, I thought to me it was a kind of symbolic um, event that the, the ship that was sent out to salvage the Moskva is apparently the last serving czarist period ship. <laughs> Right. Right. 100, 110 years old. Yeah. Um, along with these tremendously frightening and horrible and numerous in the nuclear weapons in the case of battlefield ones, there they do seem to have made great technical progress. Um, one of the things we were wrong about was how far he'd managed to, to modernize his, the whole military episode. You've got demoralized, uh, ill-prepared, ill-coordinated, ill-supplied, uh, um, ill-disciplined, very ill-disciplined um, troops. How long can actually he go on waging a war without making any significant gains? Um, because it's clear that um, at least some people around him think that he doesn't just want Ukraine, he also wants Moldova, but could he really do it? So, so one of my fears is that, he, is that he, the temptation to him, I think we're in the realm of not of calculable risks, but of uncertainty here. Just don't know. But it might become more and more tempting to him to escalate. The, the closer That's it, the worry. Yeah. If you look back into, into Soviet and Russian history, Afghanistan was undoubtedly a factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union and the destruction of the um, Russian Imperial Fleet at Tsushima in 1905, lo losing a big war very sort of destabilizing, particularly since the Russian Federation is not, I mean, only about half of it is Russian. It's actually a decayed or corroded relic of empire rather than a, a, a nation state. Um, it's, it may be more fragile than we think. And some people, of course, say, well, that's wonderful. It would collapse and be, uh, we get rid of this sort of monstrous entity. But Yugoslavia doesn't make you that optimistic about how that would work out. Um, um, 
that would be more than a regime change. What it would be, it would be that the state itself would fracture as well as the regime. And internally, most of Russia's natural wealth is in the uh, uh, is in regions where there aren't majority Russian populations. In other words, in areas where um, um, there might not be that much deep attachment to Moscow. And if you if you look at a the previous case, that was a hundred years ago when the Romanov Empire collapsed, first two parts to break off were um, Siberia and the um, the Islamic parts. If the federation actually fractured. You could have a, a really a, a resource war and a Yugoslav type situation, but against the background of it still being a nuclear power. I mean, what I'm saying is, I'm not intending to make it insoluble. I'm, what I'm actually saying is, I don't think whatever happens in Ukraine, Russia is going to go away as a major risk for countries, for the whole world, for Europe, but especially for countries on its borders. If I was talking in Poland now, I would say, as well as Athens and Jerusalem, which you've fed into your Christian culture and classical European culture. You might even have to take some kind of take a bit of a leaf from Sparta. You've got a. Um, I mean, they don't need talking to, and they know what the situation is. But I'm just about. You've got to gear up for the long run, because even if the Putin regime goes, not impossible in my view. Um, we don't know who he's going to be replaced by, but it could also be that if there is regime change, the 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 error in Western policy in regime change in. Iraq and um, uh, Libya was not to understand that the regime and the state were intertwined as deeply as they were. That if you get rid of the regime, you also get rid of the state. So then we had it, Islamic State in, um, in, in for a while in, um, in Iraq, and also now very heavy penetration of Iraq by Iranian power in various ways. And in Libya, you've got no state at all, practically speaking, just several different governments. Um, so um, don't be too. Whatever happens now, don't don't think there is some kind of way of resolving all this. Like get rid of Putin. Might make things better. Um, it's hard to think that they could be significantly worse, but it wouldn't solve everything. So, in large part, what I hear you saying, and this is where philosophy is important, is that. Uh, you know, you've often been uh, critical of liberalism's view as human nature is essentially calculating and rational. Mm. Stop projecting the way we think yes. we think onto them, both Russia and, for that and matter, China. China. They can be calculating and rational, <clears throat> all right, but their the, the, the view of the world and of the, and of the relative risks and uh, uh, is still very different from ours. Yeah. Maybe especially so in the case of Russia, because some. Um, um, in the case of Russia, there, is, there are these old religious traditions of apocalypse and um, um, getting a better society or a better world through catastrophe of some kind. And uh, I think they might have been revived um, even before Putin. I mean, one of the interesting features of the Putin uh, regime is the tremendous importance that the uh, Russian Orthodox Church has acquired within it. Uh, and um, I've read in studies, a study done by an Israeli, published by an Israeli um, researcher recently, that um, uh, in many ways now the, the Russian Orthodox Church has some of the functions that the KGB had and still has, which is that they've got military priests, they've got them in the nuclear complex, they're right throughout society. Of course, they're very big in propaganda now on television. I mean, the only independent, in quotes, uh, uh, Russian television system is one run by 
one of Putin's friends, who is a big orthodox oligarch, who promotes the war in promotes the invasion on a on a kind of on a theological basis. Actually, the theological basis is um, uh, the Russian world, Russian civilization, Russian orthodoxy, based in Kiev. It's where it started. So we're going to get it back. We can't. We can't have it drifting off to Europe, drifting off to the corrupt West. It's a theological justification of it, and we're not used to that outside of Islamism. It's deeply troubling to me, not least of all because of the point you just made. Uh, whilst we admire Zelensky and the fighting spirit of the Ukraine, oh, very much so. Uh, I'm not quite sure they're in a position to be critical of the West for being corrupt. Mm. You know, uh, just the mere fact that Ukraine is so wealthy but its people are so poor yeah. tells you something about corruption and the state of governance and the commitment to fairness and equity across that community. Well, the other the other thing is, I think the the my deepest worry about this is that I don't quite understand what the Western Allied war aim is. Is it to stop, I mean, is it to stop something like a genocide in Ukraine? If so, you know, I support 100%. Uh, Is it to um, reclaim the parts of Ukraine like the Donbass region, even beyond the two pseudo-republics, pseudo-states, is it to get that back from the Russians? Is it to get Crimea back? Never get Crimea back. Um, because that wasn't only, a, um, that would be existential. I mean, one of the things I remember during the Crimea uh, crisis is the way Gorbachev and everybody else, they all came out and said it's Russian. Um, so, John, this seems to be so critically important to me, and I... I a really rich ground, as I think of myself as somebody out in the Pacific watching the world. Um, we've got to be realistic about Russia. NATO must be realistic, or, or at least let me narrow that down. Europe must be realistic and not drop the ball, not go to sleep, prepare for the unlikely or the unpredictable. And one of the factors they've surely got to take into account, because I agree with you that there are isolationist um, trajectories emerging in some of America's uh, political uh, um, subsections, if you like. Um, But I don't think America, there's two points about America, I don't think they can ignore the Pacific. In the end, I think that would be their priority. I think Europe ought to be aware of that, that would be my view, and aware of the fact that America can't carry everybody, and it it won't and it can't, put it that way. So it's critically important, it seems to me, that that Europe not go back to thinking there's a peace dividend or that we can just return to normal. Or that they can rely on America while continuously attacking it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, you see, but ask yourself the, the question, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it might have been one you asked already, where would Europe be in the Ukraine crisis if it hadn't been for the Americans, if it hadn't been for the American nuclear umbrella, if it hadn't been for American logistics, if it had all turned on the French and the Germans as the key powers, the Baltic states would have been stalwart. They would have done what they what they had done, have done, or even even more if they had to do it. The, the Finns would have been uh, strong. The Poles would have been very strong because they've all got a, a an historical experience of Soviet tyranny. Um, but suppose the Americans hadn't been here, uh, or they hadn't hadn't actually engaged the way they had. What what would have happened in Ukraine? It, 
it would have been sold out, would it not? It would have been, it would have been absorbed. They would have fought. Um, they fought uh, at the end of the Second World War, I think for about 10 years, from the early 40s to the early 50s after, against the Soviets. There would have been guerrilla war. Uh, they would have gone on because they are a nation and they would have become even more of a nation as a result of being attacked in this way. But they would have lost by now if it hadn't been, yes. I think, for the, for, for the Americans. If we'd been down to the... What would have happened earlier on in the Balkans if the Americans hadn't intervened? What would have happened if it had all been down to the EU? The EU is non-existent as a military entity, as a military power. It hasn't got any military power, and it won't have. It takes too long to get it up. Uh, you're talking not just about uh, armies, difficult in themselves to establish at a transnational level. Macron's army is a phantom, and I don't think will come to anything. But even if it does, you're talking about um, uh, logistics, you're talking about intelligence, you're talking about high tech, which takes years and years and years to get up, decades probably. And I doubt, to be frank, that there is the will to do that in much of continental Europe. The Germans aren't going to do it. They say they are. Uh, there was a great deal of um, talk about an historic change in German foreign policy, yeah. but they backed, they backed off from most of that. Didn't last long. It lasted about a fortnight. The second end of history lasted about a fortnight. <laughs> Our worst fears, frankly, for anybody watching closely. Yeah. If Germany had really stepped up, if it looked like they and meant And stayed it, stepped up. Yeah. They would have been the third largest spender on defence in the world after America yeah. and China with yeah. the size of their economy. They won't do it because of their energy dependency on... on, on, on well, they're the, funding the war. Yes. Well, they're sending arms yes. at one level underneath Some that. arms, yes. Uh, as, uh, another, another. But, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 money they're sending to Putin far outweighs mm. such weaponry as that. You see, that's in a respect in which he is rational and calculating. He knows he's got friends like Schroeder. He knows they're deeply dependent on, uh, so dependent on um, on Russian energy uh, uh, inputs that if they were cut off altogether, um, uh, the economy would be too severely damaged. He knows, therefore, that they've got to keep part of the part of the financial sanctions. They've got to have clauses and loopholes in them to allow the banks that deal with those uh, transactions. They've got to be exempted from them. So he knows that the um, economic sanctions and the financial sanctions can never really be complete. And he's prepared to ride out whatever impact they have on the, on the Russian people uh, themselves. Um, uh, uh, because he thinks that's sustainable. And there again, he's probably correct because the deep fatalism of the Russian people, the deep unhappiness, those who can't stand it will try and escape to Finland or uh, Turkey or Armenia or where, the, by, where, by the way, they were the places they went to in um, Finland and to, in a hundred years ago in uh, when the, it's history repeating, it's repeating itself again. Um, so the IT people, the young people, dissident artists and others, they'll leave. But the rest will stay there and put up with what they have to have to put up with. So the and, and be influenced by what I'd have to describe as a really, really troubling theology. Yes. All the Orthodox leaders, yes. Orthodox Church leaders, which yes. is something that frankly concerns disturbs, worries me no end. Well, I think it's of profound significance because to the extent that it is part of the Russian state now, and to the extent that it's part of even the Russian military, so that there are military priests, not just um, 
religious ceremonies and, uh, and, and blessings of, and even special chapels for the nuclear complex, which there are. Uh, but that there's almost a second chain of command of, 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 uh, of priests. It's hard to know how much this impacts the uh, armies themselves, because the armies, of course, are not, uh, they recruit disproportionately from non-Russian elements of the population. Some are Muslims, some are Buddhists even. Uh, um, so it's hard to know how far it affects them. But in terms of the hold on the Russian state in Russia, it really seems very strong. And it adds to this, it, it adds to this, it, it gives another element to this bizarre propaganda that they're denazifying a state whose two principal leaders are Jewish. <laughs> and uh, that they're defending against a genocide when in fact they're committing one. Because if we, it's not a genocide of the kind Hitler committed, um, it, but it is a genocide in the sense of if you say that a people which exists shouldn't exist or in some sense doesn't exist, and that if you take them over, you can el eliminate their national culture. They're saying, I mean, they say explicitly now, uh, the Russian propaganda media, uh, um, um, that the Ukrainian national culture is a fake. So what we'll do if we prevail in Ukraine, it's why they can't be allowed to prevail, whatever else happens, we will eliminate that. We will, that means um, those areas that are not depopulated, which would probably include the Donbass area, they'd be depopulated and some Russian uh, elements would come in. Uh, there will be a tremendous repression and propaganda uh, indoctrination in school can't be allowed to happen whatever else happens that can't be allowed to happen so we've got in the west we've got to be um uh stalwart and uh, uh and and stoical and to see this through in the long haul but the difficulty i agree with you john completely on this is that the europeans are taking american engagement for granted and i agree with also that that america isn't as inherently an isolationist power uh, 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 as many people say, and also it can't be in relation to China, no. just can't do it. But can it actually have these two theaters, one of actual military conflict, which it's, in which it's involved in a kind of proxy war, and in another, it's not involved in a hot war, but it's involved in ramping up uh, various defense structures and so on. Can it do them both at once? Very doubtful. And in that case, I think the one that would be sacrificed would be Europe. So what would be the situation in Europe uh, it, it, when it all turned on, what happened in Ukraine turned on France and Germany, both weak vessels, in my opinion, in different ways. Um, um, we, I think, uh, under most governments, we in the UK would continue to be strongly committed to, to Ukraine. But we're not a major, I mean, we're a nuclear power, or a mid-level nuclear power like France, but we're not a great nuclear. Basically, it would be us, the Poles, the Baltic states. That, that would be it. Yeah, it's a very interesting European division, that one. And let's hope it holds out. And, and, and as someone who admires the role Britain has played mm. uh, in this event, as in so many other yeah. events done through the ages, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for Britain's leadership role. We could talk about this forever. There are other things that Let's you have yeah. written on and, and thought about a great deal that I, I must explore. Yeah. Um, it was popular until pretty recent times to say that Western society had rejected grand narratives. You know, the meta-narratives are all dead. Marxism, enlightenment, uh, 
humanism, optimism, optimistic and pessimistic humanism, perhaps, uh, certainly uh, um, uh, religion. In other words, we're all postmodernists now. But I wonder, the present culture wars, which are seeing an extraordinary sort of return of absolutism, it seems to me, and a renewed trust in science, COVID, we're being told, trust the science on climate change all the time. Maybe Western society was never as uh, relativist as um, the postmodernists uh, sort of argued. What's got the ideological zeal going again, or did it never really go away? It was just sort of a bit under the surface for a while. I think, I think ideological zeal um, didn't turn into postmodern relativism or skepticism as much as into uh, um, an anti-Western um, ideology, which in its own way was as absolutist as what it claimed it was facing. Um, I don't really see any great turn to rationalism because it is true that what got us through COVID was vaccination, and vaccination is the power of science. So in science, progress is real. But if you look at, by progress, what we mean here is not just improvement, we mean cumulative advance in which the advances made in the past are carried on into the future. So you're building. When you have a new scientific theory, all the previous scientific theories are not falsified. Elements of them are carried on in, in the new theories. Um, um, so there is progress in science and in technology, and that saves us. But on the other hand, in the COVID um, uh, epidemic itself, you look at human behavior, political behavior, um, wasn't really that magnificent. <laughs> We've had the return of paranoid worldviews, of conspiracy worldviews in a big way, not only in America, uh, but also in Europe, very strong in France and Germany, for example, um, anti-vax um, um, movements. So I think that the, the talk that you find among thinkers like uh, Steven Pinker and to some extent uh, Yuval Harari, but you know, we're going back to science. I think there's a kind of moral panic at work in the West, which is that having rejected religion, which gives a picture of the world in which it has meaning, people turn to a kind of um, various, um, in the past, communist, and then uh, kind of uh, liberal um, views in which the whole world was being converted to reason and liberal democracy would spread, and that didn't happen. Uh, they then um, have reasserted uh, their belief in, in reason uh, and in um, technology. And I think, as I've said, that is a, a reasonable, it's, 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 it's reasonable to be, to look on the progress of reason and science and technology genuinely cumulative. But the world, uh, the world as a whole, uh, and human behavior as a whole, um, Actually, um, mass psychology, mass panics, conspiracy theory are as, are as real as ever. So I, I, I treat, I mean, I sort of treat psychotherapy for unbelievers. That's to say they can't really put up with the stress and anxiety of a world in which nothing is certain. And one thing happens after another. Putin might trigger a nuclear war and so on. That's too terrible. So what they too frightening, and they're not stoical enough to put up with it. So what they say is, well, the reason is working, it's gradually working through society. Well, in the case of America, um, Pinker himself has been attacked at Harvard for his views on a number of things. There isn't free speech in most 
in any traditionally recognized sense in most American higher education. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, so actually, I think what's happened is not a, um, I don't think the move to postmodern relativism was all that real when it happened. Let's put it like that. It was really the switch of one ideology um, um, to another. Um, so for the benefit of um, people who mightn't have followed Stephen Pinker amongst my friends in Australia, he of course is a very optimistic academic, he's very yeah. optimistic. Um, I love him when he's critical of cynical theory. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, he's good on that stuff. Yeah. He, you know, he poses the question, how did this intellectual flim flam ever take off? And then now infests everything. Critical race theory or critical gender theory is just... But is it but, weaker but, now than it was five years ago? I'd say it was stronger. Yeah, well, the question... It's more pervasive. Yeah. It's more pervasive than... Even more pervasive. In other words, despite his arguments against it... Yeah. Yes, I take some, your point. Some of which are quite strong, argue, yeah. powerful arguments. Mm -hmm. It hasn't actually stopped it spreading. Now, this is, I wanted to drill into something here that you said was very interesting. I mean, it's obvious that science is advancing in extraordinary ways, and we might talk about AI in a moment and where that could take us. And, and it's cumulative. You can add to it. But do societies do the same? And, I, you know, I notice one of the things about... I don't, want to be, I don't want to sound like I'm down on young people. I don't think it's their fault. But they almost seem to have been led to believe that no one has gone before them knew anything. All wisdom resides in the current age. And with the cleverness on a smartphone or whatever, you know, we don't need to pay attention to history. And we've already talked about the dangers of that. We forgot the lessons that we should have understood yes. about communism. Yeah. Can I just ask you to, I mean, I think you have this view that it's, it's, it's where's history taking us? Is it cyclical? You know, cultures rise, they yeah. fall. They I think it is. I mean, my own view is that it is. Or but is it going somewhere? Science, you could yeah. say, is on a trajectory. It just keeps learning cumulatively. Yes. yes. But culturally, and we've seen during COVID, I would say that what we've seen here is this extraordinary, desperate, chaotic, ill thought out uh, flight for security, which is threatening freedom. I think one of the reasons that people, both young and old, have a weak historical memory is that the lessons of history are usually quite chastening. <laughs> yes. Um, there have been many false dawns. Yeah. There have been many periods in which what people think are back, back before the First World War, there was a bestseller selling book by um, a writer called Norman Angel who said that trade had made war uh, uh, unprofitable and therefore had abolished it. A few years later, bang, the worst global war up till then. Should have been the it should have been the end of optimistic humanism. Didn't happen. For, well, for a while it did. For a while it did. And the trouble is when people drop rational optimism, they don't often uh, become sceptical uh, uh, or, or stoical. They become frenzied in some other way. So then you had Nazism and, and Bolshevism. And Bolshevism was a kind of radical version of optimism. As long as we kill enough people. As long as we're ruthless enough, Lenin said, the trouble with the uh, Jacobins and the French Revolution is they, they weren't pitiless enough. That was the trouble with them. They didn't kill enough people. They, they, they held back. They were held back by their reactionary sentiments, by elements of Christianity, by uh, we'll know what to do. Well, they did kill far more people. <laughs> they moved the decimal point, actually. Uh, uh, what did it produce? Um, apart from unending sorrow, millions of deaths. And particularly as it happens in Ukraine. And particularly in Ukraine, of course, and also in the... Um, so they haven't forgotten. 
they haven't forgotten. I mean, one of the reasons they are as stalwart as they are and as resolute is they still have historical memory in Ukraine and in Poland um, and in Eastern Europe as a whole, and still also in the Baltic states. Not that long ago since they were invaded by the Nazis and the uh, then uh, and the Soviets uh, um, uh, almost together. Um, so they still got these memories, but in the West. Um, if you bring up, you see, the horrors of history, the nightmare of history is tolerable uh, to most people, including most intellectuals. Uh, if you think there is a hidden design, which if you're a Christian, you will think. But supposing they, none of them, they all claim to be, I'm not a Christian myself either, but they, they all claim to be not just non-Christian, but anti-Christian. But they still need the belief that there is some underlying um, redemptive pattern in history, that it's not just a a cycle of events. And what that leads to in practice is that they don't really want to study the parts of history that are extremely disillusioning. They don't want to study very, very little being done, for example, on um, uh, comparatively speaking, on, for example, the Russian Civil War. A friend of mine, uh, the military historian, uh, is, has, has done a new history of the um, Russian Civil War. Millions of people killed extraordinary cruelty, an enormous loss of human life and of civilization. Uh, and then a, a Bolshevik government secures its uh, dictatorship over the country, including U Ukraine eventually. Um, and um, uh, what people wanted to hope, hope for from that was at least an element of order. But what they got instead was, um, um, even under Lenin, it's an important point, what didn't just start happening with Stalin, terror. The first terrors were under, under Lenin. Tens of thousands of people being, um, being arrested. A famous poet, a famous Russian poet was shot in some woods in um, 1920 or 21, I think it was. Uh, the uh, husband of uh, Anna Akhamatova, the famous Russian poet, shot in 1921 as being a part of some non-existent monarchist conspiracy. Uh, the terror started right then. What they got was not peace and order. What they got was a, a terror of the kind. They'd not even had anything like under the czars. They're flawed as the czars were, anti-Semitic and imperialistic and so on. The level of killings was um, uh, enormously higher. And the level of terror even beyond killings was enormously higher. Uh, and you know, so to actually go into that and to see how many lives were broken, give me, I'll just give you one example of that period. Um, in 1918, they, the new Soviet constitution was passed and it included as a legal category what were called former persons. Very interesting concept, the concept of a former person. And if you were a former person, which would be a priest, someone who worked in the church, uh, someone who'd had being a capitalist or a small small owner of some kind, business owner, or their families, which extended beyond the people themselves to their families, family guild. You were stripped of civic rights, didn't have any civic rights, you couldn't stand for office, couldn't vote and so on. But not only that, when it came to the crunch, you either got no Russian card or a lower, which meant a death sentence. That was right from day one of Soviet communism. Now, if you start looking at that, and then what it eventually produced, Lenin and then the family in Ukraine, and then uh, and in Russia, of course, collectivization. And at the very at the end of this tremendous catalogue of human sorrow, what you get is Putin. All for nothing. 
all for nothing. That's an extraordinarily uh, challenging lesson for the optimistic, secular, rational mind to absorb. And basically, it can't. So what they do is don't study it. What we'll study instead are areas of oppression, which might be real, by the way, might have been real, in former empires. In where We'll study Western oppression, because then we can feel more virtuous by exposing it and talking about it. And also, it's ended, or at least it's diminished. There hasn't. It's not just a, a kind of an almost... A, a succession of an ending crimes and tragedies, which it was in Russia and I think is in China. Um, so uh, um, I think, in other words, what I'm saying is really the ignorance of history is partly willful. It's partly that um, young people don't want to hear about it, they haven't been taught it, but it's also the teachers don't want to teach it either because it's rather dispiriting. Whereas with a more traditional view of history, even like the one I was taught at school and um, back in the 60s and 50s and then at university in the 60s and so on. It's partly from the ancient classics, partly from Roman historians and so on, and partly from Christian sources um, and Jewish sources. Uh, um, uh, you could maintain a certain long view, a certain balance. You could, you could accept that there was tragedy in history. And, and terrible crime in history, and that it wouldn't necessarily go away because there was, to move to another question you asked, there was such a, there was sometimes called uh, um, original sin, there was some flaw in human nature such that human beings would never, they would never seem to be dangerous to each other and to themselves. And I think the ultimate root there, it's, part, it's in Christianity, it's in Augustine, it's also in um, the Old Testament. Uh, it's in the, um, the Genesis myth, because my reading of that inexhaustible myth is that knowledge, knowledge of the sciences, knowledge of, um, uh, of the physical world, knowledge of how to control and gain power over the physical world, knowledge is ethically ambiguous. It can, it can enslave as much as it can, um, uh, it can emancipate. And so the basic point here is that there's, a, there's an asymmetry between the cumulative advance of human knowledge and of human power through science and technology. That happens. It's real. The postmodernists are talking nonsense. There wouldn't be as many human beings in the world as there are now if there hadn't been industrial agriculture and um, um, proper sewage and uh, vaccinations and penicillin and all these things. It just wouldn't be there. So there is growth in knowledge in that sense, whatever they might think to the contrary uh, or pretend to think. Um, uh, but in ethics and politics, it's not like that. In ethics and politics, what is gained is lost. Nearly, If you look over a long period, it's lost. In Europe and English-speaking countries and some other countries, uh, over the last 300 years, there have been a, a growth of wealth, a certain growth of democracy and rights. And in the, in the 20th century, we had the, the great experience, if you I think, uh, and I was strong, committed as an activist in one of these things. We, we defeated Nazism. I was, wasn't, I was born in 1948, so I didn't know about that, but I would have taken part in it if I had been there, I've done what little I could have done. In the uh, post-war period, the Cold War period, we, we saw off communism, we thought, not in China, 
but we, we saw it off in the, in the former Soviet Union. So people, so that, that generated a, a big a sense that, um, you know, we can see off these great evils forever. Well, you can see them off, but not forever because they, they come back. Uh, they come back either in a different form, the way Putinism has, has come back, uh, uh, or they assume a different form as they've done in China. And that's too hard a lesson for most Western secular thinkers to learn because it means that they're secular. Being religious, you know the term theodicy, they're secular theodicy. They have their own theodicies. Things will work out, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll educate everybody, we'll, it doesn't work like that. What happens over time is that um, the lessons of the past are, I would say, often willfully forgotten because they're so, they're tough lessons, they're hard lessons, don't want to hear about them. Um, uh, and, and instead we think trade will liberalize China. It hasn't. People, st I mean, as recently as 10 years ago in Britain, we had uh, uh, a, pr a prime minister, uh, we had um, uh, David Cameron, and, um, um, George Osborne, who, by the way, when I visited Beijing, I found them referred to as the two posh boys. <laughs> really? With contempt, yeah. open contempt. Mm. This is why they were still in power. Yeah. Open contempt yeah. from the communist intellectual elite. How are the two posh boys doing? What are they doing now? Um, uh, um, they believed, I think genuinely probably, they genuinely believed that if you traded with them and you trusted them, and so you could even entrust them with your communica communication network, you could have them building your nuclear power stations. Now all these things would all be wonderful. Uh, because they'd said Huawei is an independent private firm, it has nothing to do with the Chinese state. Nothing in China has nothing to do with the Chinese state. One way or another, they're all uh, uh, that's what it means, especially now, because China, from having been totalitarian under Mao, shifted to a kind of more moderate authoritarian regime where parts of the society were genuinely independent or had a degree of autonomy, to being totalitarian again. And you, you just don't have big parts of the economy or big parts of the institution independent of. The army isn't, isn't independent of it. There won't be a revolution from the army in China, I don't think, because these she is re-concentrated, or they've made them all swear oaths to them. And whenever there's any the slightest whiff, the people involved vanish. And when you have parts of the economy, some oligarch, some billionaire, kind of uh, Ma, Jack Ma, whoever it is, they vanish. Yeah. They may either be dead, or, in, or they may be playing golf, as he's allegedly doing. But they're out of the game. Everybody knows that. Well, 15 years ago, I wrote a book called The Immortalization Commission, which was about two attempts by uh, predominantly secular movements to conquer death. Yeah. One was Western psycho research and spiritualism, very, very strong in, in Britain uh, and other parts of the world. And the other was in Russia, and um, which included a variety of patterns of thought, even among the Bolsheviks, including a group called God Builders, which thought that um, uh, the dead could be brought back to life by technology. and some of those people were involved in the uh, embalming of Lenin after an unsuccessful attempt using German refrigerators, because the best science is always German, you see. Uh, the unsuccessful attempt to freeze him. <laughs> uh, I'm glad it was unsuccessful. <laughs> so am I. Uh, anyway, uh, I think one of the, it helps to have a longer perspective in the history of ideas in this respect, because one of the features of um, 
the resurgence of religious themes unrecognized as such within... Um, so you're drawing a distinction there. This is not traditional Christianity. This is this whole multiplication of new ideas. No, no, it's not traditional Christianity at all. In fact, the people involved don't have never been, don't know anything about truth. Yeah. They don't know anything, or, or are either hostile or know nothing. Or either know nothing, or are hostile, or both. Because of this lack of history again. Lack of history again. They don't, a lot they, of the people that know. I hear criticizing Christianity, I can say, don't actually know what it no, is. No, no, they don't know what it is. But I mean, for example, um, uh, uh, Kurzweil, a man called um, Kurzweil, who now works for Google, has a book called The Singularity. And you've probably heard of the idea of the singularity. It's the idea that all the parts of human knowledge come together and they. Uh, uh, reinforce each other at the same time and create a kind of explosion. And from that, humans can become, he says, immortal. Now, first of all, singularity is actually a, a term, excuse me, which comes from within American fundamentalism. It's connected with the second coming, which they think of as, unlike Augustine, as a, phys as a temporal event. Uh, the, the end of the world really happens. Jesus really, in other words, it's not that there are two, there's a city of God and a city of man, and the two sort of interact in ways that can't be fully understood by uh, human reason. It's that the world will really, he takes over that idea without knowing it. I didn't know anything about the history of religion. And he said, they're all going to come together. And so we're going to, and we're going to live forever. And he even, now here's where we get to, it's actually almost poignant, critical as I am of him. Um, uh, he says, we, we'll get to a point at which, providing we can remain in good physical health until then, um, we can then become immortal because the singularity would have happened. So the technology would be there to upload our minds into um, into cyberspace. They used to have had themselves frozen, but then they uh, thought it could be done by uploading their minds, and then we'll be immortal. Now, the interesting thing is, in the interval, he's been trying to build a, a virtual model of his uh, father who, who died so that he could communicate with this model and as it were, establish a kind of relationship with this model. Now, his father's not there, of course, unless you are a Christian believer, which he isn't. It's just, a, it's, there's no sentient consciousness behind it. It's just a computer simulation. But that brings, you know, to me, what it means is that the loss of, more, the loss of bereavement, people are worried about mortality in two ways. They're worried because they know themselves, they, they are going to die. It's very hard to accept that. Uh, but actually, many people, I think, more worried or more uh, more terrified and more um, uh, burdened by the thought that those they love, bereavement is a greater loss to many people than the idea that than the, than the fact that they're going to die. They can't bear the loss of those that that they love, and I think that's true of him, and that was true in the in spiritualism, the psycho research in Britain, uh, uh, especially after the First World War. Lots and lots, I mean, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, one way or another, got involved with movements where they were communicating with their usually sons, died in, in, in the war. It just the, the burden was just too great. Interestingly, it didn't happen after the Second War. And I, wonder, I often wondered why, and I think that one reason may, may be that the, the scale of death was even greater. I mean, the First World War was a terrible, but the industrialization of death in the Holocaust, in in all the features, was just so great, almost overwhelmed um, people. So it didn't happen. Didn't happen then. So in other words, these supposedly secular trends in thought are expressions of religious needs and even of religious themes and ideas and beliefs that don't know that they are what they are. 
Uh, and uh, if you point out to them, to the people who try to do I don't do it actually all that much anymore because apart from a sort of the unwitting humor you get out of it, it's not, it's not very uh, productive enterprise. They don't understand, since they're so ignorant of religion, and ignorant in general, especially, especially of Christianity, Judaism, but even of religion, and they think they lack it. They think they've transcended it. Yeah. When actually every word they say, almost, on these matters, is a kind of unwittingly coded, not by them. I mean, they just, when they talk about, well, we'll be, uh, we'll be able to see our, and communicate with our loved ones, there'll be virtual elements on them, and we won't die, and our bodies won't age and grow old and fade away and fail. None of these things will happen. It's straight out of the religious traditions they um, think they've rejected or, or, have, um, or, have never, or have never had. And I think that's very um, unfortunate because it, um, and to some extent, transhumanism, it, it affects even thinkers of interest like uh, uh, Harari. Because he says humans, he says the human species can become gods by, um, uh, by linking up with AI and creating these uh, Post-human, this post-human species. Well, let's have a bit of realism here. Um, if that happens, if there are new species, post-human species, there won't be one. There'll be several because if you, again, you look back in history. Stalin was interested for a while in pseudoscientific experiments being carried on um, between apes and uh, in which apes and um, brought from Africa, and it seems we don't know for sure, but gulag prisoners in mutual impregnation didn't lead to anything of course but terribly cruel on top of everything else and his interest seems to have been in developing a soldier type of soldier that could eat less sleep less and be even more hardened and cruel than soldiers who'd been hardened by war can be so what what do you learn from that you learn that if these technologies ever work and if cloning ever works and if uh, few, I mean, hooking up with AI ever works. It'll be done by states, and maybe terrorist groups, organized crime. It'll be done by various human groups for their own purposes. So there won't just be one um, suddenly out of human uh, activity and human out of science. There won't be one uh, um, um, artificial god created by it. There'll be many. It'll be more like the world of Homer. Warring gods. Warring gods. That's, it. that's what it'll be. Yep. That and it could yep. could even happen. I think it'd be terrible if it does happen. I'm not sure it doesn't happen already. It might happen already. We all choose to be God over our own lives, and when I decide I'm God, you decide you're God. Yeah. Well, we've got a problem. Yeah, we have a serious problem <laughs> because who controls the, uh, the the relations between gods? And, and then so it becomes on. a struggle over power. It becomes a power struggle. Uh, yeah, because rather than are, one of seeking cooperation. And also because there are no common rules there. I mean, you can have common rules if you're mortal humans. In other words, you say, well, we need common rules. We need, we need the Geneva Convention. We need, uh, we need these restraints because otherwise it's going to be uh, absolutely nightmarish. But if, you, if you're the Nazis or if you're, um, um, if you're Putin in a way, um, you have no time for these restraints because paradoxically, in his case, because of a perverted type of Christian, maybe, if it's genuine, uh, uh, Christian uh, orth uh, of orthodoxy. By the way, lots of orthodox people, of course, resisted. But it's there all the same. And uh, in, in Putin, I, I, I think, and it's that, I guess, which is the ultimate uh, bottom line about the present.
crisis, which is that I think the West has had a very simple-minded idea of human reason, of human rationality, and it's extended not only in philosophy and economics and other areas, but even into the theory of nuclear deterrence, to go back with what we were starting with, which is that as long as you have people all over the world, and it worked, you see, it did work. It's worked for a long time, actually, an amazingly long time, if you think, because there's been no use of uh, nuclear weaponry um, since 1945. Um, and uh, so it's natural to think it'll continue working, but were we lucky rather than wise, rather than, uh, and also um, there was a tremendous effort by the West, and perhaps even to some extent during certain periods by the Soviets, to um, limit the spread of proliferation, because even the Soviets, well, I didn't want it proliferating all of the nuclear weapons, because it would erode their powers as well. That may have been shaken, that edifice now, by, uh, by Ukraine, by Ukraine. Uh, because especially if, and I'm, I'm not predicting this, I hope it doesn't happen, and I think it still might not happen, still less likely than not to happen. But if the situation in Ukraine develops in such a way that it looks as if he can make practically no gains from what he had before invasion, and that the gains that he has made beyond um, the two pseudo-republics could be uh, stalled or even chipped back at by the Ukrainian forces. And if that situation persists for a while, what does he do? The temptation must surely be to escalate. And the one with the escalation which is most consistent with official nuclear doctrine, which is written down, which the West, you know, it's, it's published, it's, uh, you read it on websites and so on, that they regard the use of battlefield nuclear weapons as entirely legitimate in certain circumstances. Then we're in a, we're in a, we're in a very different world. We've, 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 we still haven't had, we still wouldn't have had the intercontinental transfer of missiles. Uh, we still wouldn't have had a nuclear holocaust, but we're in a, in a different world. And so I think we need to revise our assumptions about, this is the hardest part of it all, about human rationality. Not just in the sense that there's a kind of people say, ah yes, we're less rational than we think we are. That's true, but it's not the deep truth. The deep truth is that rationality in the sense of calculation, of um, strategy, can be harnessed to completely different worldviews. Dangerous world, threatening worldviews, worldviews which would say, well, I think um, this was said in, uh, either by Putin or one of his acolytes. He said, well, what's the world worth if there's no Russian world in it? That's a pretty chilling thing to say. Yeah. Um, we just have to think about it for a while to think about what that, what that means. And um, so that's, I think, the, the deep significance of Ukraine. It's, 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 it's something, oh, just one final comment. I think there's nothing. I think so-called realist views of Ukraine, give Putin what he wants, are dangerously unrealistic. Because if what he wants is this, the reconstitution of this semi-mystical Russian world, then he, obviously it won't just be Ukraine, he'll, he'll, he'll want plenty more. Um, he'll at least want um, Moldova and these, and maybe more, he might even include um, the Baltic states, who knows. Um, I think that 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 kind of so-called realist view, which has uh, been revived in America recently and elsewhere, but especially in America, is very unrealistic because what it doesn't take into account is the deeper irrationality in which strategy and calculation combines and com is com with a, a 
uh, a fundamentally um, delusional and destructive worldview. And that's what, that's what happened now. So, so what an irony it would be, wouldn't it, if the um, rest was destroyed or deeply damaged by an over-simple faith in reason. Well, that's a very powerful thought. You've been very generous with your time. I think we're in furious agreement, are we not, on, on, <laughs> on a so. lot of I things? Think so. I think but so, particularly John. that we're all hotwired, I think, to grapple with the big questions, the conundrums of good and evil and mm. guilt and redemption and mm. where to find hope. Mm. The worst mistake we can make is to gloss over the hard lessons yes. of history in the hope that there's some shortcut that someone mm. hasn't explored. Or It'll to only condemn yes. us yes. to repeating bad mistakes. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.